in two minutes. This week it was the gospel in one minute. Lecrae, Lecrae, don't want to waste my... All right, some of y'all are with me. That's all right, that's all right. Some of y'all are Lecrae listeners. Some of you just learned Lecrae. Now you know who he is. He has a famous song called Don't Waste My Life off the famous sermon of John Piper, Don't Want to Waste My Life. Or, and then the book was written from Passion 2000, I think. Um, quite, quite impactful. Just a quick survey. Uh, some guys and I were talking before the service. Um, this has nothing to do with anything. Uh, so this, there's nothing spiritual here. Uh, iPhone users, if you have an iPhone, raise your hand. If you're iPhone users. Okay. Non-iPhone users. Okay, so it's about half and half. Um, and then iPhone users, uh, raise your hand again for me. How many of y'all use the Apple Maps instead of Google Maps? All right, so I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. So apparently the Google Maps are better, and I was trying to say I'm, you know, I use Apple Maps too, and I'm very, very loyal, but they told me that that didn't matter. All right, so again, that had nothing to do with anything that we're doing. So uh, it was just settling a discussion from before. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into the book of Acts. We are studying through the book of Acts. You can see it's called Blueprint, um, and this is us going through the book of Acts, um, learning how we can precisely do community mission and care. So the three things that we're called to as a church, if anybody ever asks you, hey, what's Remedy all about? You would hopefully say these three words, community, mission, and care. Those three words are, are what we are pursuing after. We believe that as we're pursuing after that, we're doing the Lord's will, and we're doing what the Lord wants us to be as a church. And so we thought, how, what better thing to do is to go to the book of Acts and see how the first church uh, was started and how they did those three things. And so um, as we're doing those three things, uh, as we're looking through the book of Acts, we've been studying and seeing those things. And you can see understanding God's design for the church as we understand how the first church um, was started. There's certainly lots of applications we can make for our church. So uh, we've been going through the book of Acts wanting to do that. Now, one specific thing you should know uh, if this is your first week here or if you haven't been here in a couple weeks is we've been, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've come up to chapter 10. And so coming up to chapter 10, there's a little bit of a, uh, a difference compared to most of the rest of the book um, thus far as far as application goes. Thus far, we've just been seeing how how the gospel has been spreading, how God has been using people, how community has formed, how mission has been accomplished, etc. And we get up to chapter 10, it's all kind of been centralized to a certain kind of race. It's been mostly in Jerusalem, where people who are Jewish are, are out on the outskirts of people who are Jewish slash Gentile. So they're kind of, they're Samaritans, they're both. But in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 10, there's a new thing happening where now... Brand new. I mean, never happened before. Gentiles are being saved. And so this is really working on Peter. And John Stott, he's a theologian slash commentary writer, says, as we get up to Acts chapter 10, because as you're reading through it, you're thinking, oh, Cornelius is getting saved. And so this is about what's happening in the book of Acts is how now Gentiles are getting saved. The book of Acts chapter 10 is about Cornelius and Gentiles now being included into the family of God and getting saved. And John Stott writes this. Peter's the primary, uh, primary person that God's using to, to um, win Cornelius. Stott says this. The principal subject of this chapter, or person of this chapter, is not so much the conversion of Cornelius to Christianity, which at first blush is what we would all kind of think is happening. It is not the conversion of Cornelius to Christianity. As much, it is the conversion of Peter from 
his deep-seated racial intolerance. And so as we've been going through this, uh, as we going through this chapter, we're seeing that in the story of anyone being saved, of anyone being saved, um, there's certain things that happen. And so the title of the last few weeks, this is part three of really a three-part sermon. Next week will be part four, and then we're actually going to be finished with this particular section. Um, but as we're looking at this, we're seeing the conversion of not just the sinner, but also the saints. So the conversion of the sinner, as in those who are enemies of God, those who are Gentiles, those who are outside the family of God, Cornelius, and all these particular people, not terrible people per se, just not followers of Christ. Those particular people are coming to know Christ. But then you also have the conversion of Peter, who's already converted, who has a good vertical relationship um, with the Lord, but his horizontal relationship still has things that need to be worked on, places that need to be sanctified. It's really dark up here, so I'm going to cut this light on so I can actually see. So um, anyway, uh, so as that's happening, I know it's random, but I just couldn't see. So as that's happening, um, the, the conversion of sinners and saints is really kind of the, the theme of chapter 10 into 11. 11, by the way, when we get into 11, uh, verses 1 through 18, um, Luke, the writer, is so... Um, intent on making sure we understand what happened in chapter 10. He takes the whole story of chapter 10, which is 48 verses, and summarizes it completely in chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, where Peter goes back and he gives the whole kind of spill about what happened. And Luke wants to make sure we understand what happened, that he, he literally tells the story twice. So um, in the conversion of saints and sinners, there's, there's six things that happen um, in any in, in any person. So as, as Peter is sharing the gospel of Cornelius, as you share the gospel with your neighbor, as I share the gospel here with you, at any time anybody gets saved, this is what happens. God prepares, this is wor- working back um, a, a few weeks back in verses 1 through 8, God prepares the ground of the unconverted person's heart. There's a, there's a, um, a preparation of Cornelius for the gospel. And in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 10, God prepares that person's heart so that whenever someone comes and shares the gospel, it's going to happen. But also, in verses 9 through 16, God prepares the messenger for the task. So Peter is then prepared for sharing the gospel with Cornelius. And that's what happens whenever we're going to share the gospel. God prepares the heart of someone that's going to get saved. God prepares us to actually be able to be equipped to go share the gospel with them. And then after that, uh, in verses 17 through 33, you finally see the intersection and the interaction of the two. They finally, their two lives, come together at some particular point, whether they've met each other or not, or whether you've known them, the intersection of the time to share the gospel and then the interaction of how that goes down. That happens in verses 17 through 33, which is what we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, or last week. And then when we got to verses 34, we saw the, the actual gospel proclamation. Starting at verse 34 and following, the gospel proclamation happens. It says, so Peter opened his mouth, which is huge. I mean, that is a mountain that most uh, cultural Christians have a difficult time getting over. We'll hang out, we'll, we'll do stuff, we'll bring them pies, we'll cut their grass, we'll da, da, da. but what, the, the point where it's time to actually proclaim the gospel, those, so Peter finally opened his mouth and started, to, that, that is a huge mountain for a lot of Christians to get over. Understandably, understandably, I'm not, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but Peter steps out and says, I'm going to share the gospel. They're not going to get saved unless I tell them, so I'm going to tell them. So Peter shares the gospel, and then he says, truly understand that God shows no partiality. This is what I've learned. I've learned that doesn't matter what race you are, the Lord wants you to be saved. And then he says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And then he tells basically the story of Jesus, which is the gospel. The good news is the, the gospel of Christ is how one gets saved. And you can see it. Um, 
preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened through all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So he starts with the life of Jesus. And after he talks about the life of Jesus and who he was. I mean, this is a summarized version from Luke. It could have been that Peter, as he preached this, was a little bit more expansive. He could have been that, could have been that concise. But he may have been a little more expansive as well. We don't know. But what we do know is that he talks, when we're going to share the gospel, when we're going to open our mouth and finally tell somebody about Jesus, that you have to talk about Jesus' life. And then after that, he talks about Jesus' death. Um, verse 39, we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country and Jews. And Jerusalem, and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And so you have to get to the fact that Christ died for us on the cross. And then after that, you talk about his resurrection from verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank from him after he rose from the dead. So he gets to that to the resurrection so that you can understand the fullness of the life of Christ, both his life, death, or all of his life, death, and resurrection. This is what happens when we share the gospel with people. We have to talk about who Jesus is. You should tell your personal story. That's fine. There's no, no reason why you shouldn't tell how Jesus has changed your life. But um, those are subjective things, and those don't convert per se. The things that convert are the objective facts of the, of the gospel that happened 2,000 years ago. Both are good. I'm not saying you should only do one. Um, you need to do both. But you should, you should make sure you talk about Jesus whenever you tell the gospel. And then you can see the implications that come from that uh, after Peter tells the gospel. And this isn't just some you know, credit card swipe and then you're good and you can do whatever you want the rest of your life. It costs you your life. And then he help, lets them know how it costs them their life. And he commanded us to preach to the people. So when you become a Christian, the thing that I just did, now your life is, is dominated by the same thing. You're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel. You're going to tell people about Jesus and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to the judge of the living and the dead. To all that the prophets bear witness. And here it is. And so he, he throws out the fishing line and he's, he's told them all who it is. And he's, going, he's ready for them to believe and, and pull the hook. This is where... You're going to actually tell them and, and ask them to believe. To everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So this is crucial in our evangelism. We have to open our mouth. <laughs> we have to do it. We, we talk about Jesus. And then we don't just kind of leave it out there. Think on that for a little bit. Get back to me when you're ready. No, no, no. It's fine to say, after you've done it, and say, do you want to trust in Jesus today? How about right now? How about right now you trust in Christ? I've done it. I mean, it's, it's quite effective. It's amazing. Um, it's nerve-wracking because then if they say yes, you're like, really? Okay, well, um, let's pray and uh, let me talk. Like, you got you to know what you're going to do next. But there's no reason not to go ahead and say, how about right now? So that's what Peter does. He shares the gospel with them. And whenever we're telling people about Jesus, we finally have the message of the gospel delivered. And then that brings us into what we're going to look at today, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit. Whenever someone believes in Christ, they're given the Holy Spirit. Now, my plan was to do 44, 1044, down through 118. But I couldn't get past 44 through 48. I got through those verses, and I'm just like, there's, there's so much in these 
short little verses that I want to talk about with us. Um, and I want to, us as a church, as we're, as we're finishing, pray together for this to happen. So we're going to actually spend some time corporately in the service praying together for this to happen. I couldn't get past some of these words that were here to where I just had to stop and say, I'm just, that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do any more than just that today. And that's okay, we'll just pick up at 11.1 next week. So let me pray, and then we will jump into verses 44 through 48. Let's pray. Lord, be with us now as we look at your text. Every word is inspired. Every word is inerrant. Every word is sufficient. And so we pray that as we look at this interaction between Cornelius and Peter and as he preached the gospel to them and we see uh, what happens after that Um, and even as next week we go into chapter 11 Lord that you would take uh, the preaching of your word and use it for your glory and the equipping of your saints and the edification of the Christians here and that we would resolve in our hearts and mind not only to trust in Christ wholly and completely for the sufficiency of his death um, on the cross for us, but also the implications of being sent. And that as we read this, that we would, we would long for this to happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, um, after church on Sunday, I walked out to the York Baptist parking lot. I got in my car, and I drove straight to Orlando. Um, and I was there at a conference uh, and we came back on Friday. I totally broke my routine. And that's, it's odd for me to do that because we have so many kids and we have so many things going on. Going out of town is kind of a big deal. And so uh, whenever I'm gone, like, th- there's a lot of things that are kind of weird and off. And we're all in kind of one hotel room. And that's always weird trying to sleep with all that. And the Cubs were on, you know, woohoo, they won. Like that, having to watch the Cubs by myself in a hotel room and like, <clears throat> not waking up kids. But anyway, like, I, I went out of town. Um, one stayed up till 1.30, she just wouldn't fall asleep, um, no names, but while we, were, uh, while we were out, I broke my routine, I broke my routine, which was good for me, uh, I don't normally break my routine, but whenever I'm finally out of my routine and I come back, I just, I don't even know what's going on, I'm like, it takes me a couple of days just to kind of figure out what's happening and remembering that we have things going on, and while I was out of, out of my routine um, and coming back, I realized breaking routine's good. Like getting out of the monotonous kind of week-to-week thing is good because it makes me like reevaluate a lot of things. It makes me look at things and think, why are we doing it this way? And why, why am I doing it? Anyway, I think that um, we can also spiritually get into a routine. We can get into a routine in the reading of Scripture. We can get into the routine of the preaching of the gospel. We can get to the routine of coming to church each week and kind of going through things and not having that routine kind of broken. Uh, And so what I'm hoping to do today, this is a short, simple challenge for us all, is to get us out of a routine. Get us out of a routine. I want to read this text, uh, and I'm hoping that you'll, with me, see this and think, wow, if our routine was broken, that would happen. I want that to happen. Look at this, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, Preaching the gospel. These things are the preaching of the gospel. While Peter was preaching the gospel, watch this. The Holy Spirit fell. Okay, so we can read that 
and not like stop and be like, whoa. <laughs> the Holy Spirit fell. I, I couldn't get, that's, that's why we're doing just four verses this, this, this time. I couldn't get past those words. The Holy Spirit fell. And just thinking to myself, what would that be like? Why don't we see that? Routine is why I think. But let's keep going and we're coming back. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. Even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing, watch this, this is amazing. For they were hearing them, the Gentiles, speak in tongues and extolling God. This is a a reverse of Acts 2. Then Peter declared, so he, I mean, Peter's just wrapped up in the moment. He's already, he's in the house, he's had some bacon, he's like, well, who, can anybody keep, uh, withhold water for baptizing these people? I mean, it's always just been the Gentiles, but since I'm here, and we've already had some bacon and some ham, let's just baptize these people too and make them part of the family of God. Can anybody stop me? No? All right. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It's not, a, it's not a less than, it's not a halfway, it's not a different, it's not a three-fifths. It's not, there's no different thing that happened here. They have the exact same amount of the Holy Spirit as we have. There's no difference between us. This is pretty awesome. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then this last little thing. They asked him to remain for some days. And clearly he does. So what I want as we're looking at this is to be broken from routine. To be broken from routine. Um, I know, before we, we go into it, that as you, you know, Hermeneutics 101, as you're looking at narrative texts of stories, always stop and say, is this decrypt, descriptive or prescriptive? It's huge. If you don't ask that question, you're going to build an ark later whenever you're reading Genesis, right? It's, it's, there's a difference between descriptive and prescriptive. There's describing of events that aren't necessarily normative. It's just describing the events. And then there's prescriptive. As I'm reading this narrative, there's actually prescribing of things that I'm supposed to do. So when you're reading Genesis, it's descriptive. You're not, it's not prescriptive. We don't need to go build an ark. Like, build an ark. Oh, i got to do what Noah does. Like, no, you don't need to. It's the same kind of idea here. So this is describing what happens. But there are some normative things that I think that we can pull out, some principles. So as we look at this, we can't say it's prescriptive and that's what's going to happen if we do it just like it. However, I do think there's correlations. It's not just coincidence, but correlations happening that help us understand. In other words, um, the preaching of the gospel happens. And when the preaching of the gospel happens, and the, the previous section we looked at last week, even in a descriptive text, there's a correlation between the preaching of the gospel and the Holy Spirit falling. I know it's describing the events, but there's a correlation between the two. And what I want for us is to get out of that routine and when we see the Holy Spirit fell, to say, that's what I want. So, the gospel must be proclaimed. If we, pres- if we proclaim this gospel... Not just here on Sundays, but with our lives as we demonstrate the effects of the gospel in our lives and proclaim it with our mouths to people that live around us. We should see the Holy Spirit fall. Piper says this about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's free to come and go. So when I say there's a correlation, 
you can't make the Holy Spirit do anything, all right? He says it this way. The Holy Spirit's free to come and go whenever and however he pleases. He's free to give gifts. He's free to withhold gifts. To regenerate and convict and baptize and seal and fill and comfort and counsel whenever he wills according to his own infinite wisdom. He is not bound to make any of our programs work. That's, that's true. He is not constrained to do what we think he should do whenever we think he should do it. He's God. He's free. So as I'm saying this, I'm not saying... If we do this, the Holy Spirit, I mean, he's got to. He's like, oh, look at Remedy. They're doing it. I got, look, it looks like I got to go fall. So we're going to beg for him to fall. But we can see a, a correlation here. That we should desire to proclaim the gospel and de- declare and demonstrate. De- declare the gospel with our mouths. Demonstrate the effects in our lives. And as we do that, and we pray like crazy, then the Holy Spirit can fall. The Holy Spirit will fall. And I think that to, to pull us out of routine, we want to see that. What this means, continually quoting Piper, is that the Holy Spirit is more likely to come in power where the truth about Jesus is being lifted up and made plain. The Spirit loves to come and take the truth about Jesus and turn it into an experience of Jesus. That's what happened in Acts 10. Peter held up, held up the verbal portrait of Jesus and the Spirit came and turned the portrait into living reality of Jesus himself. And so, let's all, and we're going we're gonna to close with prayer, begging the Holy Spirit to fall. It, it, we, it means that we're going to be proclaimers. We're going to be declarers and demonstrators of the gospel. And we're going to close the service with asking him to fall. But this is what I want you to see in this particular text. When the gospel's preached, there's four things that we're going to see. Again, these are descriptive in the text, but I do think there's correlations. You can go ahead and put up the title. When the gospel's preached, number one, there it is. When Peter was, was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So if the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit, then... Because we understand theology, this means that they have believed the gospel. No one receives the Holy Spirit without having trusted in Jesus. So if the Holy Spirit is falling on them and they're speaking in tongues and they are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can infer that they are now believers. So when the gospel is preached, God converts sinners and gives them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. He fell on them. The Holy Spirit's essence, his goal, his, his desire, what he wants to do is to glorify Jesus. J.I. Packer says it this way. The essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry is at, at this or in any time in the Christian era to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stott continues saying, explaining that. In other words, the Spirit is sent to make Christ real to our people and to show us who Christ really is in his glory so that we come to love him, trust him. So this, this is what the Spirit wants to do. He doesn't want to magnify himself. He wants to come and magnify Jesus so that you will love Jesus, trust Jesus, obey Jesus, show Jesus to the world. The Spirit responds to the exalting of Christ. So when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit comes and converts sinners. So that's the first thing that happens. There's more. There's more. We're going to come back to that, actually. This number one, Holy Spirit falling, will be part of the conclusion. And I've already told you what we're going to do. So number two, I want you to see in number two. Watch this in verse 46. So um, as the Holy Spirit came, 
It was poured out on even the Gentiles. And then notice, it's, it, like I, I said, it's kind of the Acts 2 reverse. In Acts 2, the gospel came down to them and the Jews were speaking and the people were understanding it in their native language. Here it's kind of the opposite. For they were hearing them. So that means the Jewish people that were there, the ones that Peter brought with him, those those circumcised three men or four men that came with Peter over to see Cornelius, they're hearing the Gentiles speak in tongues and extolling God. So they're hearing them speak in tongues, and they're hearing, they're like, this is amazing. They're speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit has dropped. So um, what they're doing is speaking in tongues and extolling God. That's a strong word, extolling. This is this is massive praise flowing out of the hearts of these particular people. So when the gospel is preached, the second thing is God-haters or enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. However you want to describe those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus. God-haters, God-enemies, um, us before who we once were, as it says in Corinthians. Um, become people who now extol God. Extol Him. Uh, I, want, I want you to think about extolling in, in a couple ways. So yes, when Jordan puts on the guitar and he plays Defender and we sing, we are extolling God. We are praising the Lord. They're speaking in tongues and they're extolling God. But they might not be singing. It's not, it's not clear. Might not be singing. They could just be saying, God's awesome. The Lord is amazing. Jesus Christ is amazing. He is my Savior. I love the Lord. They could just be doing things like this. So I want you to think of extolling, not just restrained or confined to the, the four songs you sing in this room each week, but also as you live your life, that as you're walking through and situations are happening, good, both good and bad, that you choose in those moments to extol the Lord. You say, when something happens, as Job, that, that's, that's horrible. The, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Whichever. Or when things are going great, you say, the Lord has given this. Praise his name. So we want to be the kind of people that that if you were to cut us, we bleed extolling. We bleed praise. Not just here in this room. So when we say God-haters become people who extol God, we mean in all of life, the things that fall first from their lips are praises and adorations to the Lord. This is astounding. Because I want you to notice the first thing. God haters. That's who they are. Ephesians 2 is clear. Enemies. Actually, it says that they're devil worshipers. They follow the prince of the power of the air. So this is a massive, massive change. So let's, let's think about what's being said here. In an instant, consider this. Someone that did not know God. Someone that followed the prince of the power there, someone that had no concern for God, someone that was an enemy of God, someone that woke up that morning and had no thought in their mind that morning as they were waking up that sometime that day they were going to be singing the praises of Jesus. That was not on their mind. An enemy of God that woke up and said, I probably will be extolling the Lord by 3 p.m. No, they weren't thinking that. They joined in at this particular moment This is astounding. An enemy of God instantly, in that moment, joins in with all of creation, all of the angels, all of the saved, and at that time began extolling the Most High God. In an instant. This is absolutely amazing. What does our worship look like? 
Does this thought amaze you? That an enemy of God becomes someone who praises the Lord in an instant. Does that move you? Does that make you, when you think about it for a while, start to well up with excitement? God did that in an instant. Does it make you want to scream out in your, in your mind, yes, 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 that's what I want to see. My life and the people I know. Does the thought of the people that are the enemies of God becoming worshipers of God because someone evangelized them and proclaimed the gospel, just an ordinary guy like you and I, in an instant, they're extollers of Jesus. When the gospel's preached, this is what happens. Think of someone that you know. That you, like that person. It would blow my mind if they became an extoller of God. If one day you proclaim the gospel and they say, Jesus is Lord. Like think of that person. This is what happens when the gospel's preached. I, I want us to, with everything inside of us, believe the power of of the proclamation of the gospel. There's amazing power whenever we preach the gospel, whenever we proclaim the gospel, whenever we share the gospel with someone. So the first thing, when the gospel's preached, God converts sinners, which is amazing, and gives them the Holy Spirit. He falls. The second thing is God haters now become people who are God worshipers. They extol the Lord. Then you can also see this. Then Peter declared... Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? Well, the just as we have I've already talked about, which is pretty amazing. Peter doesn't try to make it any kind of levels. Like, okay, we're the Jewish Christians, so we're better. You're the Gentile Christian, so you're less than. Just like we have. You have just as much Holy Spirit as I have, so <laughs> there's no difference. You're a son of the king. I'm a son of the king. You're a daughter of the king. She's a daughter of the king. All the same. That's pretty awesome. But also... Third thing, new converts are baptized. When the gospel is being proclaimed, the baptismal waters of the church should be moving. When the gospel is being proclaimed, not just by me, not just by the pastors, but by all of us, our baptismal waters should be moving constantly. Now, baptism is symbolizing what has happened internally. It's the... um, external representation of what's internally happened in the heart. A person hears this gospel that's proclaimed to them that Jesus died for them, that Jesus was resurrected, and they believe that. They believe not just the, the facts of it, but they believe that that was, my, that was my death. That should have happened to me, and he took my place. And when he took my place, all of his perfection and righteousness and holiness was then imputed into me, and now the Lord's sees me as he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus pure. Now I get the benefit of that. He sees me pure. And all my stank, all my junk, all my nastiness was then put on him on the cross. And he gets all of that. And God poured out his wrath. And so there's more than just saying, I believe a guy named Jesus lived. Sure. It's not that. It's not just believing uh, tacitly in facts. But it's also trusting in his death for you. And when that happens... That's, the baptism is a symbol, symbol of that. Uh, if you look at uh, Romans chapter 6, you'll see how Paul explains this. Look at, if you want to, it's about 15 pages to the right. Romans chapter 6. He talks about baptism. Um, we'll get to it at verse 4, but I want to read starting at verse 1. Well, then shall we say, are we continuing sin? 
that grace may abound. We're picking up in the middle, but Paul's talking about the fact that when you become a Christian, since all your sins are forgiven, you could just say, well, they're all forgiven, then it's no big deal if I sin. As a matter of fact, if I keep sinning, then God keeps forgiving, and it makes God look awesome, because he's such a forgiving God. He's like, no, 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 don't say that out loud either. Like, it's kind of where we are. And so he says, well, then shall we say, are we continuing sin that grace may abound? If I keep sinning, grace abounds. And look at that. God's just known for giving grace, and that's what we want. No, 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 no. By no means. Mega noitoi. I don't really, this stuck in my head from seminary. That was a seminary throw up just then, sorry. By, by no means. Um, I have no idea where that came from. By no means. How can we, must have been Greek, how can we who die to sin live in it? So think about this. Whenever you're in, in the baptismal, this is symbolizing that someone is, goes down into the water and the symbolism of what's happened is saying, you just died. Like whenever you went down, pretend like the guy held you under there for a few minutes, right? And you died. And then all of a sudden, boom, like he's got the magic touch of Jesus. This is not exactly what we think happens in baptism. So don't think, fudge drowns people and then they come back to life. And he, he heals them and brings them back to life. No, that is not what I do at all. I, you're down there for two seconds. But like, so, so like he heals them, brings them back to spiritual life, and then brings them up. And mentally what's happening is, Fud just died. And now, Fud's awake, Fud's alive. Jesus brought him back to life, but it's Jesus in him. Galatians 2.20. The life I live is uh, in the body is, is by faith. It's not by me. It's by, by faith in the Son of God. So um, he's saying, but Paul's asking, if, so if you just died, died to sin, that means you're not supposed to sin anymore because you've been raised in Christ, in new life. So how can we who died to sin still live in it? You can't keep sinning if you died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were, here it is, baptized into his death? So whenever you, when Jesus died on the cross and you're being baptized, you're saying that, that death that he had on the cross is symbolized by me going down in the water. I'm also dying here. And then when I come up out of the water, it's symbolic of what's happened in my heart that now I am raised with Christ. Jesus is alive in me. And here's, this is theology 101. Jesus doesn't sin. So now I shouldn't sin. Here it is, verse 4. So when we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death, in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk now in newness of life. So when we come up, we have newness of life. So no, you don't sin anymore. Because you have Jesus in you and the Holy Spirit, right? You shouldn't want that anymore. But verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his... So symbolically, ours is going down in the water. His was on the cross. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So just as he was resurrected back to life, defeating Satan, sin, and death, our coming up out of the water is symbolic of showing that we also now have the power of the Spirit to defeat Satan, sin, and death, and sin in our own life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that's kind of the explanation of what baptism is. But back to the text in Acts chapter 10. When the gospel is preached and someone trusts Christ, then baptism should happen. We should see baptisms. So who do you want to see baptized? Who do you want to have the, the external representation of what's internally taking place if they trust Christ? Who do you want to see baptized? Who do you know that it simply breaks your heart that they haven't trusted the gospel. 
I want to ask that question again because I know that I can breeze by that and you might not have anybody and you're hoping I'm going to keep going. I'm going to ask it one more time because you should have someone. Who do you know in your life that it simply breaks your heart that they haven't trusted the gospel? We should have people in our lives that become extollers of Jesus. They're baptized. That's what should happen. Now, here's the last thing. And this is picking up in what we've been talking about the last two weeks when we're talking about um, diversity and talking about uh, racial reconciliation and the applications that it makes to us. So, can anyone withhold baptism in verse 48? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So there they are. They're baptized. New converts are baptized. And then it says this. Watch this. And they asked him to remain for some days. Peter's is great. All this is new to us. You're nothing like us. But we know you have things that you can teach us. Would you stay here? We know that staying here makes you feel uncomfortable. We know that you know, in your law, you're not even supposed to be in our house. You're certainly not supposed to eat our food. Not only did we want you to just to visit us for this little bit, little bit and then you, you, know, you can get out of here because you feel uncomfortable. No, no, no. We want you to stay here with us for a few days now. Be with us and teach us. So when the gospel's preached, here's the fourth thing. This is piggybacking on some of the things we've been talking about the previous two weeks. If you haven't been here for the previous two weeks, it's on iTunes. You can just download it at the Remedy Church iTunes account. Um, they see the value, not just of Christian community, because in here, it's diverse Christian community. They see the value in that. There's value in diverse Christian community. John Stott says it this way. They asked Peter to stay with them in their household for a few days. No doubt to nurture them in their new faith and their life. They needed human teachers. They have the Holy Spirit. We're not trying to short shrift the Holy Spirit's work. Like, okay, Holy Spirit, we'll take it up from here. We need a human teacher. That's not what we're all saying at all. But we know that the Lord wants to have community. We, we're absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit for this to happen. They needed human teachers as well. Peter's acceptance of their hospitality demonstrated, here it is, the new Jewish-Gentile solidarity which Christ had established. There was an, um, an acceptance in Peter's mind and heart that we need to have diverse Christian community. The gospel proclamation, and even as he says it in verse 34, truly understand that God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter what race you are, God wants you saved. He understands that now, and when the gospel is proclaimed, we also understand that there is value in diverse community. We need to, in this particular um, time, in 2016, we also need to have Jewish and Gentile solidarity, but just we need to have racial solidarity as well. As Christians, we need to continually work towards racial solidarity. It doesn't matter if we live in the southeast of America or if we live in Romania or if we live in China or if we live in Antarctica. <laughs> All right? There's going to be this. In America, we have African Americans and Hispanics and whites and there's this weirdness. In other countries, it's different races, but it exists everywhere. So that's why the application goes across everything. We need to see the value 
and having racial solidarity. This past week, as I said, I got in my car and I drove to Florida. There was one night, um, if you've never been to Florida, specifically Orlando, um, then you should go. Because uh, it's pretty amazing when you go to Walmart. Going, I'll just say it this way. Going to Walmart in Orlando is not like going to Walmart right over here in York, you know, or, uh, on Newport Road. So I, I was walking through Walmart. It was me and Aiden. Uh, we were getting, who knows what, bread, something. Uh, and so we're, we're walking around. Um, and as we're walking around there, I remember at one point thinking to myself, I haven't heard English spoken the whole time I've been in here. And I've been in here almost 20 minutes. Like, I have no idea. They could be talking about me and my weird face or hair or clothes or who knows what. But no one here, and it wasn't just like one language. I heard about seven different languages. And I remember thinking to myself, this is remarkable. This is pretty awesome. This is this is what it feels like to be surrounded by diversity. And I, as I came home, I stopped and was talking to one of my friends that, that lives in Orlando. He ministers in Orlando on the northern part. We, we met at a playground and talked for about an hour. And I was like, telling him the story. I was like, his name's Jason. I was like, Jason, whenever I went to Walmart a couple nights ago, like, I didn't hear English for 20 minutes. And he goes, I know. He, I know, man. It's so cool, dude. He's from Kentucky. He's really funny. And he's like, I can't do his voice perfect, but he's the nicest guy in the world. And he says, it's so great. It's so great. He loves it. He loves it. He says, it's so great. You just, you just get used to it. But I forget, like, how diverse we are. And I was like, it was, it was really cool, especially kind of being fish out of water from Rock Hill and coming in here. Like, it was pretty awesome. And he's like, I get so used to it. But you're right. It is so diverse here. Uh, that's why I say you should go. Just go somewhere where it's different. And then you feel different. And you see the beauty of the trophies of grace of all the diverse nations that will be represented in heaven in Revelation 5. Um, and it was exciting. And then you can, I think, when the gospel is preached, understand that we can really see the value of diverse Christian community. I want that at Remedy. I want that at Remedy. I, I realize we live in Rock Hill, okay? I realize we don't live in Orlando. But I do think that we can achieve this. I think that with God's grace, we can do everything we can to strive for the Spirit gives it, I understand. But we've talked about these things over the last couple of weeks. And uh, I want us to push ourselves to think about it in our own hearts. Are there any barriers in my heart that keep me from, from loving this or desiring this or wanting this or pursuing this? Are there any barriers in my own heart that I don't, I'm just unaware of that, I, that aren't happening? I think it pushes us when we, the gospel is preached and we see the value. It pushes us to do this. To start doing the difficult work, and it all starts here, the difficult work of thinking for a while about our heart and mind and asking ourselves how we can grow in this. I think that sometimes we forget to just stop it with that very first step and thinking about our own heart and mind and saying, how can I grow? Let me think on this for a few hours. Examine my heart and mind. What are some ways that I can grow in pursuing diversity, not just in the church so that the church looks more diverse, but grow that my life looks more diverse. The people I hang out with, the people I have dinner with, the people that are my friends, that we can grow in diverse. Do you see the need for a diverse community in your own life? I hope you do. How can you seek that? What can you do this week, the next seven days, What's one easy first step you can take over the next seven days to have this start happening in our church and in your life? They see the value of Christian diversity. Now, verse 44. 
And I've been thinking on this. The Holy Spirit fell. What would it be like, just let your mind run right now, if in the preaching of the gospel at a Remedy Church service, one Sunday morning, I believe the Holy Spirit's here, so don't, I don't think the Holy Spirit, I believe the Holy Spirit's here, but we had the Holy Spirit fall. Like, you know, the old school thing when they say revival broke out, and all of a sudden, it just got, you're like, wow. That was, that was different than normal. What would it look like? Let your mind start thinking what that would look like here on a Sunday service. Or even just, you know, tomorrow morning when you're reading the Bible before you go to, serve, before you go to work or church or, or not church, work or office or that's the same thing. School. Whatever you do. <laughs> before you sleep in until 12, whatever you want to do. Like, think about that. The Holy Spirit fell. Don't we want this to happen? I think we do. But I think that we get into such a routine that we just, we're, we're grinding it out day by day. We're going, we're going. I got to go to work. I got to do this. I got to get my clothes. I got to go dry clean. I got to eat. I got to go to the grocery store. Blah, 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 blah. Go to karate or soccer or whatever we do, right? We get in that routine and we don't take that one step back and to say, I want the Holy Spirit to fall. Do I expect him to fall? Do I pray for him to fall? Does it break my heart that in my routine I haven't seen him fall in such a long time? Is that even, is that even something I'm thinking about? You might say that's, that's how it happened in the first century. It doesn't happen anymore like that. And I would say maybe that's just because you haven't ever seen it. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And so I want us to expect it. I want us to long for it. I want us to pray for it. I want us to want it. I want us to, when we read stories over and over in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit fallen, we get a holy, righteous jealousy for like, man, I wish that would happen here. Come on, Lord, please. Let the Holy Spirit blow, like in John chapter 3, and just move in this church. What if, what if we began believing that this could happen? What if we didn't put our kind of preconceived false limitations on how the Holy Spirit moves and God moves and just say, we're going to pray like crazy and we know that you can move and you're free and you just, Lord, would you come and fall and amaze us? What if we lived our life constantly expecting the Holy Spirit to fall rather than saying, well, that's a super extraordinary thing that probably won't happen. What would it look like? What would your prayer life look like? What would our corporate prayers look like? So I want us to pray for that. And I want us to pray for it now. In the service. All together. Here. So. We're going to conclude the service. By you. Uh, you can pray out loud. Which doesn't bother me. You can pray in your heart and mind. I know that most of you will. <laughs> um, but it is cool when we're all praying. And you hear everybody praying. And you're thinking man. God's so big, he's hearing all of us. And then there's like 70 churches around here and 400 churches around here and he's hearing all them too. God's amazing. If it makes you nervous, I understand. But I want us to pray. God, help us be the kind of gospel proclamators and demonstrators, declaring and demonstrating so that 
your Holy Spirit will fall. And we can see people trust Christ. And we can see people baptized. And we can see amazing diversity start spreading in our church, in our city. So, uh, go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads. And start praying as you feel led. And then after about a minute or so, I'll close this in prayer. And then um, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Jack will come. uh, One of the pastors, Jack, will come and lead us in time of Lord's Supper. But may we pray that the Holy Spirit falls, converts, regenerates, and that we believe the gospel and that we receive his Holy Spirit and that both saint and sinner see an amazing work of the Spirit. You can pray and then I'll pray for us. I'll pray with you all after that.